What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? Do you agree with me to answer? The sum of the Ten Commandments is the love of the Lord our God, our heart, our soul, all our strength, all our mind, love our neighbor as ourselves. If I can get the kids who are going to be going to children's uh, church after this, you can come up, come up forward, and uh, I'm going to pray for us. And I am your teacher this morning. You will follow me out. And uh, I know you didn't have a memory verse this week, and so what we're going to do is we're going to do a verse you've learned already uh, from John chapter 3, verse 16. So if you know it, read it along with you, okay? So I'm not the only one reading it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me pray for these kids. Lord, we are so thankful to have all these kids up here this morning. Thank you for their parents who have brought them here. Lord, we are so excited to be able to talk about you to these children. Lord, may they love you. Lord, may you, they love you and they recognize and know that you love them and sent your son to die for their sins. That they would not perish but have you before. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Find it after many days. 
give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Then in the final few verses of chapter 11, he writes in verses 8 through 10, uh, he's talking here about living for eternity, and he says, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the days of your heart to be. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove the vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let me turn to the, the first point that we saw in these uh, verses we just read. Uh, we can't control, I call it, we can't control other fools, but we choose our words. And so you first might say, why do you say other fools? That seems to imply that we might be fools. And I'm not sure whether we are fools or not, uh, but we tend to read wisdom literature in the Bible that talks about the wise and the fools on the assumption that well, we must be wise and other people are the fools. I would say whenever the Bible says the fool does this, anytime I'm doing this, I'm being at least foolish. And, and the Bible's lesson is don't be foolish. The Bible isn't a book of practical advice on just how to be effective and efficient. It's not even just moral advice. It's advice on having a relationship with God and how to live in that relationship. So when God is talking to us about you know, well, what the fool does and what the wise person does, He's showing us that when we do things that the fool does, those things either are sin or at least they increase the danger that we will sin, and that's why they're foolish to do. So we need to take a look at anything the Bible says about being foolish versus being wise and try to do what the wise thing is in order to avoid harm to ourselves and others, sin in our own lives. So in, in these first three verses of chapter 10, talks about how dead flies make the, uh, the perfumer's ointment smell bad. And the, the point is foolishness can even make something good into something bad. And, and in fact, in the second verse, he says a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. In, in their day, since most people were right-handed, they thought to the right was good and the left was bad. It's not a political comment. It's just in terms of how the culture thought of them. And but in verse 3, he even says, even when the fool walks in the road, and I think that's a reference to, even when he doesn't go to the right or to the left, when he's walking straight ahead, he still shows himself to be foolish. And how does he do that? Often by his words and by his lack of judgment. And so it's a caution to all of us. Even when we think we're doing the right thing, we need to be, in our words, in our motives, we need to be pleasing to the Lord in all that we do. And he picks up this same point a little bit later in the chapter in verses 12 through 15. In verse 12, he says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Words are a great thing. We can do a lot with words. We can do a lot of good. We can do a lot of harm as well. We can encourage someone. We can express love for the person. We can tell them the gospel message, that hope that they, they can know that their sins can be forgiven if they will trust themselves to Jesus Christ, and there's no other way that they can have their sins forgiven. That's, that's a great bet. The part about the fact that we're all, we're all separated from God by our sins, that's not so, such happy news, but the part that there is salvation for those who trust in Jesus. We died on the cross in our place for our sins. That's the good news part of it. And we have the privilege of giving that message to people. So many good things we can do with our work, but also many bad things as well. In verse uh, 13, says the beginning of, talking about the fool now, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. So it goes from foolish, which is a dangerous sin, to evil madness, which is sin. And so we have to be cautious about you know, speaking like fools speak, because we will run those same dangers. In verse 14, he comes to what I think is the heart of this part of the, the text which is where he says, a fool multiplies words. No man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. So 
Tate makes a general point about how he multiplies words, and then it talks about a specific point that you can't tell him what's going to happen. He thinks he knows it all. Let me focus on that general point about multiplying words. Um, multiplying words, this is talking about the quantity of our words. He's just talking about the quality of our words, good and bad. The quantity of our words creates danger. And you might ask, well, how is that? First of all, let me focus on what all are our words included. And um, a lot of times you read something in the Bible, you have to sort of apply it to today because we have so many new technologies and ways of doing things that we have to figure out what all does this relate to today. But words pretty well covers a lot because even though we've invented technology, talking on the telephone and typing messages for email, typing messages on our phone with our phones, in talking to text and so on, we're still using words. And it, we've probably invented one thing that you might not think of as words, that's emojis. But even emojis are like words. I, I heard a story on the news a couple days ago about a, a group called, it's not Christian ministry, but it's a group called Crisis Text Line. And it's, they handle text messages from people in crisis. Instead of you calling them, you text them. And they text back and they go back and forth with people to help them talk them through their crisis. And they do a lot of analysis of the texts they receive. And they found that if they receive a text from somebody and, and in the text there is an emoji of a crying face, it's four times more likely that they will eventually wind up having to call 911 to help that person than if the text actually had included the word suicide. So emojis are, are our, another form of words today, and we communicate in so many more ways that we probably have an even greater quantity of words than in the day this was written. He says the fool multiplies words, and there are some dangers of multiplying our words. One is when we talk, if we're limiting our words, we put filters on what we say. We're very careful. We, we, we filter out certain words, um, certain ideas, certain subjects. We filter out saying things that we told to us in confidence that we shouldn't repeat. We filter out saying things that are judging other people or expressing hateful thoughts about us, unjust criticism, slander towards someone else, expressing feelings maybe we, we shouldn't reveal, expressing opinions, rumors, unsubstantiated facts. We filter those out when we limit what we say. The more we increase the quantity of words we say, the more our filters go down and wind up at risk of saying things that don't please our Lord. Another danger is that when we're talking, we're not listening. It's, we see that in the second half of this verse. He can't tell, tell this person what's going to happen. He thinks he, he knows it at all. And that's why in James 1, 19, we read that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. When we're speaking, we're not learning anything. Uh, and, and as a result, I'm speaking right now. It's a uh, uh, But I, I spent the last few weeks uh, learning as much as I could about these passages to try to share that with you. So I've, I've always noticed that whenever my mouth is open and I'm talking, I'm telling information that I already know or I'm expressing opinions that I already hold. I'm not learning anything else until I stop talking and listen to other people and hear about them, hear about their needs, hear about what, what they need to know about Jesus Christ. Another danger of multiplying our number of words, and that is words take time. All the time we spend telling words to other people is time that we or they could spend doing something else. And one of the things that I see going through this whole passage we're studying this morning is something I've observed over the years, that there are at least four things in life that we all have a limited quantity of. And, and in fact, I think... God deliberately limits our quantity of these things in order to test us to see how faithful of stewards we will be with the limited quantities. He gives us, we all know that we have a limited quantity of money, I can sort of measure that in each pay period. The other three things, we have a limited quantity of them in every 24-hour day. We have a limited quantity of time, a limited quantity of physical energy, and a limited quantity of attention mental and emotional energy. And those four things 
time, money, energy, and attention. We have a limited amount of each. And we spend them on different things every day. And we can consciously choose what we're going to spend them on, what we're not going to spend them on. Or we just use them up without really thinking about it too consciously. But we're making choices every day about what we spend our time, our money, our energy, and our attention on. And words uh, often take the place of other things we could have done with that same time. We just need to choose wisely not only the words we say, but also how many of them we say because they displace other things in our lives. In, in Matthew 12, 36, Jesus said that on the day of judgment, we will all give an account for every careless word. We should realize words have great potential to do good and to do bad. We need to choose wisely how much of them we engage in. The second point I want to cover is we can't control those over us, but we choose our reactions. What we'll see here is that we're all subject to the authority of various persons over us in government, in our employment, in school where you go, in any other organizations you're part of. People over us not only exercise certain requirements on us, but they also appoint other people who are around us who we have to deal with. And sometimes that can lead to some frustration. So in, in chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, we see this. He says, there's an evil I've seen under the sun in this life. It's an error proceeding from the ruler. The ruler is the person who's in charge, whether it's a king, or it's the boss, or the executive, or the administrator of the school, whatever situation it might be. And they appoint various people. Then he describes these sort of unfair situations. He sees folly or foolish people in high places, and the rich, and he's not simply talking about the fact that they make money, but they apparently come from well-educated people, nobility of their society, sitting in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses, so he's referring there to servants who are, are not skilled at things. They have unskilled uh, labor, and he sees them in high places, and he sees princes who have been well-educated, but they're walking along uh, on the ground. He's just sort of showing is the people who have the experience aren't in the positions that require experience, and vice versa. And, and he sees that it's unfair, and you've probably experienced that in your life, whether it's in government or school or whatever, wherever you look and you see, and you see some people who you think are in the wrong positions, and, and as you like to say, don't know what they're doing, and, and it, it bothers us when we see that, and we react to it in various ways. It seems unfair, it seems undeserved. In some cases, it may seem to make your life more difficult. And so it comes back to that subject in chapter 10, verses 16 through 20. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince is feast in the morning. So when the king is, when your leader is someone who's immature, and when other people who he's placed in power are partying when they need to be working, feasting in the morning, morning is to be getting work done, and instead of feasting, prepares it in verse 17 for the opposite situation where the king is noble and where the prince is feast at the proper time and not just for drunkenness. And the attitude of those people is described in verse 19, where they say bread is for laughter, wine is for gladness, and, and money solves everything. So they, these people don't really work diligently, they don't use wisdom, instead they just figure, we'll just throw some other uh, things, we'll celebrate now, we'll spend other people's money to fix the problem when they come up later. And you've probably seen that or observed that in, in government and in employment and in other places as well. You've got it very frustrating. But he comes down in verse 20, well, actually, first, or verse 18, he says, through sloth or laziness, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, which is also laziness, the house leaks. And so we see that the wrong people are in the wrong positions, and they're doing harm, and we want to write about it, we want to react to it. The term house, you know, the house leaks, is a metaphor often used in our lives as well as in the Bible to describe various things. It can describe a kingdom, it can describe a family. So for example, Jesus, when he was accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, he pointed out that he can't be doing this by the power of Satan. Satan is casting out demons. He said a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he talked about the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And, and so the kingdom is what he was talking about here, but he's using house 
as a, as a metaphor for it. And here also we see back in Ecclesiastes using the term house as a metaphor for this kingdom. In our lives each day, we see things in our work, in our government, etc., that we think of as a house with a leaking roof, something we want to criticize because somebody else isn't doing it the way we think they ought to do it. And the problem there when we get so focused on griping about what's going on in government, or griping about what's going on at work, griping about what's going on at school, is we're, we're worried about the wrong kingdom. We're focused on this kingdom, the kingdom of human beings trying to accomplish human tasks instead of keeping our sight on the kingdom of God. Mm. What does he want me to accomplish in my life today? What am, I, am I as concerned, am I as passionate about his kingdom as I am about these other things and maybe ranting about that, that seem to affect me more immediately, but they're only about this life and the sun. Mm. In verse 20, it's more specific. He says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. So these are the people who are, are in positions of power. He says, a bird of the air may carry your voice or some winged creature tell them that. It doesn't literally mean that a bird is going to carry the message. It's a, it's a figure of speech, like the way we would say, I would like to have been a fly on the wall during that conversation. Uh, but in fact, he shows here that this, this kind of talk, this kind of thought, harms us. So when he says not to curse the king, we talked about that a few weeks ago in chapter 8. We saw a message about that as well. Um, he's talking about judging leaders around us in the business world, in, in the government, and so on. We, we tend to talk about them in terms that are very hateful at times, very judgmental, um, slandering on the names. And this probably ought not to be for Christians. We even say these things to each other about people at work, people in government, and so on. And we don't correct each other for doing that. But it's something we should hold each other accountable for. Jesus spoke about this in, in Matthew 5, 22. He said, you've heard you should not murder. You shouldn't be, they also shouldn't be angry with someone. He says, if you say to someone, you fool, you're in danger of judgment. Even that kind of name. We might think to ourselves, well, there, that's talking about when you say it to the person, because you hurt the person when you say it. But I don't think that's the limit of what Jesus was, was trying to teach. Because he said in, um, in Mark 7, he said that when you speak, he said the person is not defiled by the things that go into the mouth, we're defiled by the things that come out of our mouth comes out of the person. Things like envy and slander he listed. And who did he say they defile? They defile the person who's saying it. The person they're saying it about. He didn't limit it to when we're saying it to that person. That when we say things like that, we are defiling ourselves in our own heart. In Matthew 12, in that same passage where Jesus said that we'll all give an account for every careless word, also, in that passage, he was talking about how the fruit, basically a tree, is known by its fruit, and that the words we speak show what we are like inside. And as a result, we ourselves are defiled when we are saying bad things about other people, regardless of whether we say it to anyone else. In fact, in this very verse, he says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, which is in private curse the rich. And so we need to look carefully at the words we use and the actions we take to react to people who are in positions of authority around us or over us, whether they're near us or whether they're at a distance, whether they're here or not. Then we move on to the third point. We can't control future events, but we choose our efforts. What we'll see here is that we, we can't control anything that happens, even the results of our own efforts, but because not everything is going to come out the way we hoped for, we should work diligently in everything that we do that's worth doing. And so in, in chapter 10, verse 8, he starts out verses 8 and 9 with these four examples of things that have unpredictable results. Uh, 
So a person digs a pit, he falls into it. It's, he uh, breaks through a wall, a serpent bites him. He may quarry stones and he's hurt by them. He splits logs and he's endangered by them. Now falling into a pit that you've dug is used in some places in the Bible to describe a person who's planning evil against someone else and it comes back on him. Deb and I have been reading through the Psalms together and just within the last few days we've come across that statement twice in the Psalms. But in this passage, most of the commentators looking at it say that he's just talking about the everyday things we do in life, all our, our work that we do, all of our endeavors, the things we try to do well, sometimes go unpredictably bad. And so we have to be prepared for that and not arrogantly assume that everything I touch is just going to go smoothly. So he tells about how to handle that. In verses 10 and 11, he says, verse 10 essentially talks about sharpening an axe before you use it. And in verse 11, he's talking about the serpent, uh, how a serpent needs to be charmed before you start handling it because it may bite you. If you wait until after it bites you, it's a little bit too late. I think those two can be summed up with these this that I've observed over the years that whenever you're trying to get a good result at something you need to figure out what are all the things I need to do for this to go right and do them and you need to figure out what are all the ways this could go wrong to do what you need to do to prevent and again we can't necessarily control all those things but that's part of being diligent we need to be, we need to be thorough in our thoughts and in our actions and not just launch into something assuming because I'm doing this, it's just going to work great. In fact, Murphy's Law is sort of the term we have for the fact that it seems as if things just go wrong. In the next, in, I want to skip ahead now to chapter 10, to chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, where he completes this point. And some people think that these verses relate simply to the good deeds we do for other people to help them out with our benevolence. Some believe it relates to how we conduct business. I think these verses relate to everything that's worth pursuing in life, everything that we want to go well, how we need to approach it. So in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And if you want some good results to come back, you have to be diligent in what you do. It says uh, in verse 2, Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen. You don't know what things that you're working on are going to go well and which ones are not going to go well, including where you're trying to help other people. Verse 3 says, because it will rain, damping itself. If it falls to the south or the north, there it lies. So things happen in life that seem random to us, not random to God, but they seem that way to us. We, we don't predict them. We don't know what's going to happen don't control what happens. We just have to be diligent in all that we do. In verse 4, he says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So sometimes we, we, we try to wait for perfect conditions. We try to predict exactly what's going to happen, and we can't. So he keeps coming back to this point. Um, he says in verse 5, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones and of a woman with a child. We know that God puts life in us and a spirit in each child while his mother or her mother is still expecting that child. We know that. He does it. We know that it happens. We trust him about it. But we don't know how he does it. And, and similarly, he says, in the same manner, you don't know the work of God who makes everything. We don't know what he's doing, so we don't presuppose on him. In verse 6, he says, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. What he means is, work the whole day. Don't work a couple hours to say, I think that's good enough, and quit. He says, finish the job. And he explains in the second half of the verse. So you don't know which part of the effort you put in is actually going to pay off. And it may all come, come out just fine in the end, but we need to be diligent. I think an important point about being diligent is that we as Christians this, not simply, this is not practical advice about how to be successful in your career, although frankly it'll work for you very well, but it should also be applied in our work for the Lord, for the local church, in our relationships, you know, in our attempts to help other people who have needs, uh, in caring for our own family. We should be equally diligent. We 
should put thought and effort into all of our responsibilities. Over the years, it has at times um, puzzled me that I would see people in work that they were doing through their local church, and they didn't seem to put much thought or effort into what they did. It always left me asking two questions. And they were, is this person putting out less thought and effort for what they do for the Lord through their church than they do for their employer? Maybe because the employer could fire them or in other ways affect them economically. If we put a lower priority on the things that we do for God, that would be a problem if we do. The other one is, or does this person give out equally low level of thought and effort at what they do in their employment? In which case, that doesn't look too good for their future where they work, and it's not a good witness of the life of a Christian to the people around them work. So in all that we do, in our, in our employment, in our schooling, in our family relationships, in our neighborhood relationships, in everything we do, we should be diligent in the thought and everything we put into everything because we don't control the outcome. We don't know what God has in store. We're just called to put out the effort and that honors Him. And then finally, the fourth part, we can't control how long we live. What we choose, who or what we live for, this is in chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. He starts out, he's contrasting this life with eternity. So in verse 7, it says, Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for guys to see the sun. Light means being what he's called about this book, under the sun, in this light, while the sun is shining on us. Uh, that's, that's what light is referring to here, and that's what seeing the sun refers to. In other words, it's good to be alive. In verse 8, he says, so if a person lives many years, <clears throat> if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, in, in joy by them. But, he has the word but in the next verse too, each time he just sort of says, enjoy life. But, he reminds us what's more important. Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many all that comes is vanity. I had a hard time understanding those phrases. Uh, but again, if you go back and look through all of the Ecclesiastes, as well as the rest of Scripture, it becomes very clear. So when it says, days of darkness, I thought, what does days of darkness mean? He's referring to after he died, but not in a spiritual sense. Keep in mind, he keeps referring to this life as light, being under the sun. So he describes the period after you die as days of darkness. Not spiritual darkness, uh, unless it's for the person who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ. But he's just talking about the days after the sun is shining on you on this earth. And he, so he refers to that as days of darkness. He says, we'll be men, because eternity is a long time. And then he says, all that comes is vanity. When I first read that, but it sounds like he's saying, all that comes in eternity. You know, he's talking about the rest of this life. The verse began by saying, so if a person lives many years, he's talking about those many years, all that comes, that period is vanity, which he has spoken about a number of times. There too, being consistent through the book of Ecclesiastes, every time he talks about vanity, he's talking about this life, not what comes after this life. So he, he's telling us, Life is good, it's great to be alive. Enjoy it, but enjoy it with a view to eternity. He says, um, I want to pause for a moment. I think we, as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, we've talked about several terms. We've talked about fear of the Lord, which Denton defined for us, so I want to get We've talked about vanity on several occasions. I, I take notes in sermons, not because I go back and study them, but because I have an attention span of about one and a half seconds. So it helps me to listen and think about what's being said if just if I'm having to summarize it and write it down. But I did go back and look through the notes from the service through this series. And I saw we use a lot of different synonyms for what vanity means. It can be meaningless, futility, uh, not satisfying. Uh, one additional term I want to look at is 
the same word as translated vanity here is used in Psalm 144, verse 4. The verse before that says, What is man that God is mindful of him? And then verse 4 says, Man, man is like a breath, his days a passing shadow. We translate it from vapor to passing breath. And, and that's another way of describing the vanity of this life. It's grief. It doesn't endure. It's in substance or in time. It's, it's a brief period that we have, and we should not be too attached to it. And we need to realize eternity is much more important. It's much bigger. It matters so much more. We need to live now with the view toward eternity as being what is so much more important. Some, some commentaries look at that verse where it talks about um, days of darkness, and they just say, well, in the Old Testament, they had it, they didn't have as much revelation as we have now about afterlife and eternity yet. And they, they sort of write it off that way, but I, I think that was an incorrect way to pass off that verse, because in verse 9, he talks about God judging us. So the Holy Spirit is inspiring here with some real truth about the fact that even in the Old Testament, they knew that we will one day stand before God. So in verse 9, he says, Rejoice, O young man. It's kind of in verse 8, talks about living many years. Maybe it's focusing on the older person. Verse 9 is, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Your heart is, your, the Bible refers to your will, and your eyes refer to what looks good to you. So sometimes following our heart, following our eyes will lead us into sin. So we need to be very careful about how we go about living this life, rejoicing in this life, enjoying this life. And that's why the next word is, but. He says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Mm -hmm. So he's reminding us that there is a day after we are under the sun. We will stand before God himself and we will give account for how we have lived this life. All those choices we made all along the way, when we took that limited time and money and energy and attention that we have, and we spent it on this and we spent it on that and not on other things. All those choices uh, affect us in this life, but there are also things we need to give him an account for when we stand before him one day. As how faithful were we as servants of his with what he gave, those limited resources he gave? What kind of choices did we make? I think that's what we see a picture of here. It's, it talks about, verse 10, remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body for youth and dawn of life or vanity. So vexation or trouble and pain. He'd be saying one of two things. He could be saying, don't engage in the sins that just cause you more trouble and pain. Or he could be saying, trouble and pain are going to find you anyway. Ignore them. This life is short. Keep your eye on Either way, he's still making the point. As we go through this life, live for eternity. You don't just live for now. When he says that youth and the dawn of life, which means childhood, are vanity, he's saying they pass also. It's, it's sad when I see celebrities and maybe people that you know person who are just trying to hang on to the youth. In fact, all they're hanging on to is trying to look young. They're not actually, if they, you know, they have a driver's license and a calculator, they can figure out that they're not as young as they used to be. But they're trying to hang on to their looks. And they use, they use makeup, plastic surgery, and so on, trying to be what they think is young. And sometimes it, it kind of hurts to look at them after they've seen some of the celebrities. Uh, and it, it's painful, but it's even more painful to realize that they are putting so much value on and grasping at something that is guaranteed to go away. In fact, I often think putting part of your self-worth on how young you are or how young you look is kind of like investing your life savings in something that's guaranteed to decrease in value. It'd be like if you took your life savings and just bought a bunch of used pickup trucks and parked them in the field, and that was your retirement savings plan. It wouldn't be wise, but our youth is definitely going to leave us. This life is definitely going to leave us. 
being young isn't something to be grasped and valued. What is to be grasped and valued is a relationship with Jesus Christ that he offers to each other. And that can get deeper and deeper the longer that we know him. So my conclusion, every day we make choices about how we use our finite amounts of time and money and energy and attention. And those choices include our words, our reactions to others, diligence that we exercise in what matters to us, and our obedience to Jesus as our Lord. And we should make those choices carefully, make those choices as if we will one day stand before him to give account of those choices, because we will. Um, we need to make sure that we do not have any unrepentant sin uh, in our lives 
uh, but rather to turn that over to the Lord before we take the Lord's Supper, to not take it in an unworthy manner, uh, but to ask for forgiveness of our sin before we take. Uh, so do that. And if you can't do that here in this place today, if you need to go and talk to someone, uh, seek reconciliation uh, with another person, just, just don't take today and come back next week uh, and enjoy the Lord's Supper with us. But with that being said, if I could have Jacob, if you would come and help me. And uh, Ian, if you would come and help me with the Lord's Supper. Uh, and also, uh, when you get your grape juice and your bread, wait so that we can all take it together uh, as a congregation. As they are getting those. If you would, bow your heads with people pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and thank you for, for what is represented here in uh, the Lord's Supper. That is, the breaking of, of the bread, Lord, represents uh, your body that was broken for us. And uh, the, the wine, Lord, the grape juice that represents the shedding of your blood on our behalf for the remission of sins. And thank you, Lord, and ask for this time, Lord, that you would help us to examine ourselves to also uh, enjoy the grace that is available in Christ as we take the Lord's Supper. Praise Jesus' name. Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, 
when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as long as excuse me as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes Or violent or 
gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict him. This afternoon, we come together to ordain Robert Hudson as an elder at Redeemer Fellowship Church. I have a few vows for you, Robert. If you would just uh, follow these questions with, I do. Do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your only personal Lord and Savior? I do. Do you believe in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament through the Word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? I do. Do you sincerely believe the statement of faith and covenant of Redeemer Fellowship Church contain the truth taught in the Holy Scriptures? I do. Do you promise that at, at, at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the statements in the Statement of Faith and Covenant, you will, on your own initiative, make known to the pastors and other elders the change that has taken place in your views since your assumption of this vow? I do. Do you ascribe to the government and discipline of Redeemer Fellowship Church? I do. Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders in the Lord? I do. Have you ever been induced, as far as you know, in your own heart, to accept the office of elder from love of God and sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his Son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truth of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or oppression may arise to you on that account? I do. Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as elder, whether personal or relative, private or public, and will you endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before this congregation? Are you now willing to take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the ministry and resources of the church and devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the shepherding of God's flock, relying on the law, upon the grace of God in such a way that Redeemer Fellowship Church and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? Yes, I do. For those who are members of Redeemer Fellowship Church, these questions are for you, and if you would follow the question with I do, or we do. If you're a member of Redeemer Fellowship Church, would you please stand? Do you, the members of Redeemer Fellowship Church, acknowledge and publicly receive these, this man as elder, as a gift of Christ to this church? I do. Will you love him, pray for him, in his ministry, and work together with him humbly and cheerfully, by the grace of God, you may accomplish the mission of the church, giving him all due honor and support in his leadership, to which the Lord has called him, to the glory and honor of God. Amen. Let's pray. To the Lord, we are so thankful that you have appointed one of your children to be a leader of your church. You, Christ Jesus, are the head. You're the one that has died and raised from the dead, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who's going to give him all power and honor and rule over everything. Everything has been put on your feet, including your church. You are the head of the body. And Lord, you have appointed servants and shepherds and teachers to lead your church. Lord, I pray for Robert. I pray for Latasha. I pray for the Hudson family. Lord, we are so excited that you saved Robert and Latasha. You saved them with the grace of Jesus Christ. By his blood, the power of the cross redeemed him and her from a life of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of light. And now, Lord, by your will, by your purpose, Lord, you have placed Robert in, in authority and leadership in Redeemer Fellowship Church, Lord. We thank you for that. We pray, that, Lord, that you would give him humility, that you would give him character, Lord. I pray, Lord, that he would love your word and love the church and love Christ and abide with him. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we have um, a gift for you, Robert. Um, here is your certificate of ordination that uh, me and Ditton and Sean have, have signed. Um, 
I figured since you we gave you that uh, that uh, frame for your deacon thing, you would just replace it, right? And this is a it's a gift to the book. It's an effective biblical leadership book, and it's got um, I almost wanted to buy one for myself as well because it's quite interesting and good. But it's got a lot of different articles and sermons, I believe, about preaching and, and being a pastor, and so that should be a good gift and a good resource for you. And uh, so if y'all would just, uh, we after the service, we're going to have cake and stuff and, and just kind of celebrate this day. Uh, this is a great day because um, I, I, when I met Robert, and he, I, I didn't know him from Adam when he came to the church that I served on the east side. And got to know his story, got to be a part of his discipleship, and I'm so excited to do this today. And know Sean is as well, as we've known Robert for so many years. So thank you, and I uh, look forward to our service. Robert, if you want to stay up here and Vinton can stay up with Josh. So I don't know if y'all were a part of the parties that happened last night, but we had a men's and women's party and we parties for the Melvins. We just got together because they enjoy partying. And that's what we did last night. And I don't know if the whole of the ladies partied last night. The guys, we partied till after midnight, and uh, we had a good old time. And uh, just to kind of celebrate the, the Melvin family. And uh, for y'all who don't know, who are new to Redeemer, maybe you're just you're, you're new to Redeemer in the last year or two years. But Redeemer Fellowship Church started in uh, 20 uh, well 2016 in the Melvin's living room. We would meet after church on Sunday. Some of us went to Northwoods, others went to other churches. And we would have lunch together, and we would get to God's Word together, and we would have worship, right? We would sing songs together. That's how Redeemer started in, a, in their living room in, in a house that they were renting. And uh, so they were a part of the original team that started this church. And now the Melvins are leaving us. God is sending them to Chicago. And so that is a, a huge hole that will never really be filled because you can't really replace this family in our church. And uh, thankfully, they will. They won't. They won't. Even though they're five hours away, they really won't be that far. Because um, uh, I just know, because of our, our, our love for one another, that they'll always be close by, and that we'll still get to see them uh, often. And hopefully, we'll get to see them more than than uh, maybe we planned in the beginning. But maybe hopefully, God brings us together, and we continue to work and, and minister together, and, and, and still be a family uh, together. Um, if the Melvin family had been, in, had been an, an, an inspiration to your life, if they've been in a, just a great family that has helped you in your walk and have just been a great friend to you, if you would come forward and you would let your hands on it, we're going to pray for them. So if you're one of these people that really have been impacted by their lives and just really uh, cared by them in some significant way, we want you to come up here and just kind of show your gratitude by putting a hand on them. We're going to pray together, and we're going to send them out correctly, properly. Uh, we said when we first started Redeemer Fellowship Church, we knew that people were going to leave our church. We're going to have college students. They're going to be sent to different cities. Uh, they're going to be uh, get a job in these cities, and that their time here would be would be short. So we always wanted to be a church that sent people out the right way, and this is an example of how people should be sent out. When they were part of the church, as long as God desired, right, and they were a blessing to the people who went here. But then God will take them away and send them away. And that may be true for you. Maybe true for one of you up here. That you're only at this church for such a short time. Then God has other plans for you somewhere else. And we want to be a part of that. We want to be instrumental in that. We want to send you out. We want to love you. And we want to share and, and be in touch with you. And so let me... Um, Actually, I'm going to get Denton to pray, because I'm going to pray for them today. Denton, if you would pray, and pray for their family. And after we're done here, please don't run off. We've got cake for them, and we're going to celebrate this well. And we have a big Costco cake, which is another one of Costco. And uh, we're going to do that together. And uh, Denton, if you would pray for us in our service. Lord, what words can we say to express just the joy and gratitude and love that we have experienced through this family up here. Lord, the Melvin family is a family that, Lord, because of their love of you, because of their desire to serve and love and care for the church, have touched the lives of so many of us here. Lord, the, the extent of those who uh, they have cared for, loved on, 
brought joy uh, to, Lord, extends far beyond uh, this few number of people here. It doesn't even uh, scratch the surface, Lord, of all the lives that they have impacted greatly, Lord, with their desire to further the gospel, with their desire to uh, grow the kingdom of God, with their desire uh, to care uh, for those in need. And Lord, we want to right now, Lord, just offer up praise and thanks for what it is that you have done in their life, for how you've used them in this church. Lord, from the beginning, they've been here, they've served, they've loved, they've given up their time, their effort. Lord, all the four things that Stan talked about, Lord, they have just poured out freely upon this church for the sake of the kingdom. And Lord, we give you the praise for them. And right now, Lord, we send them out. Uh, Lord, as they move up to Chicago, Lord, we are commissioning them, Lord. We're not just saying goodbye, but we are saying go and be the church in Chicago. And Lord, we send them out knowing that they will. That whatever community of believers is blessed enough to have fellowship with the Melvins will indeed be blessed. Lord, that is our prayer. That is our hope. That is what we look forward to, Lord. What you are going to do in Chicago in the community that the Melvins are in simply because they are there and where their family is, there is a light of the gospel. Mm. Praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you so much for your service to the, to the church. Thank you. You're such an inspiration in my life. Oh. 